Hello and welcome to Amplify. Music from Neil O'Connor, his Bog Vran, as featured on CMC's latest release, New Music New Ireland 4. This week we feature a conversation with Neil about his new album Nomus Oreda Reimagined. You're listening to Amplify, the podcast on contemporary music from Ireland, produced by the Contemporary Music Centre. It's episode 77 and I'm joined by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hi Yvonne. Hello Jonathan. So for this episode, we have conversations about two new releases by CMC composers. Neil O'Connor, whose album will be launched at a concert at the Project Arts Centre on the 8th of December. And Neil Martin, whose album with pianist Ruth McGinley was launched in CMC last month. Yes, Jonathan, it really was a beautiful evening here last month in CMC with a very engaging performance by Ruth McGinley of three of the pieces from that album, Aura, which is a collection of reimaginings of Irish airs by CMC composer Neil Martin and a truly collaborative project between these two artists who've been working together on various musical ideas over a number of years. Great to to be back having music enthusiasts here in the building to celebrate this release in person. So let's hear your conversation with Neil Martin and Ruth McGinley now. Ruth McGinley, pianist and Neil Martin, composer, you are warmly welcome to the CMC podcast Amplify. And we're here having a chat just before we host the Dublin launch of your latest release, Aura, which is a stunning collection of reimaginings of Irish airs. So I'm going to start by asking you, Neil, why are you reimagining Irish airs as an Irish composer? Why are you doing that and why are you doing it now at this point in your 
compositional career? You know, when you hear, if you like, pianists from a traditional perspective playing airs in the piano, they're lovely and some of them do it very well. But sometimes there's a, a harmonic limitation to it. And I've always been taken with the notion of writing these airs and arranging these airs that could be interpreted from a classical perspective, if you like, but that wouldn't sound necessarily like a classical pianist trying to be an Irish pianist. So Ruth and I collaborated on a few things and from fairly early on, we knew that there was a good uh, harmony between us and that uh, we were enjoying the same kind of space in music. So I wrote a few things uh, for Ruth and we thought, yeah, we'll maybe do a gig or do something with them. And then lockdown happened and COVID and I wrote a lot of this during COVID. And I loved the space that COVID afforded me actually just to sit at home and, and write these airs with we didn't know at that stage that there was any you know definitive end product we weren't saying let's do an album it's serendipity and it's life and it's all those things but uh, it's been the most beautiful project really to work on Ruth do you approach a project like this very differently it's very collaborative as Neil has has spoken about and for you as a performer as an interpretive artist it's it's very different, I imagine. Well, yes and no. I very much in in my musical career have sort of simplified things over the the last few years. You know, I did the you know the, the classical concert pianist whenever I was a young girl, and you know played the big re- repertoire and the Rachmaninoff concertos and the Tchaikovsky, which were wonderful and are wonderful. But you know, sometimes life life gets full, life gets busy. I took a little step back from it for a few years. Became a mum. All that stuff that uh, that is just normal life. And it's very hard to be a concert pianist, solo concert pianist, especially being a single mum. So I really had to kind of take a step back and look and see how I could still perform, how I could still engage with music. So I, I just started investigating quietly on my own um, with the piano. And that's where in 2016 I recorded my debut so- solo album, Reconnection. I very much explored different types of music. You know, I love jazz. Um, I love Philip Glass, uh, Satie, all that sort of repertoire, which again is more stripped back in terms of technique. But emotionally, it very much sits comfortably with me. Um, in, in doing a few different projects with Mr. Neil Martin here, we very much, yeah, we connected on that I love space. I love different kind of harmonies, you know, close harmonies that are in some of these Irish airs. And I was thinking about it the other day, uh, I suppose, as we get older, we start, I think, as a musician as well, as a person, you start to connect with, you know, where you come from. Um, it's not that I, I've always known that I love certain Irish airs, but Neil brought different Irish airs to me that I didn't know it was it was such a pleasure during lockdown you know Neil was doing all the hard work and then I'd get a little present in in, in my email in my inbox every few weeks and uh, I just thought at the end of it I said these can't sit in my piano room on my iPad we, we must record them and uh, really that's how, how Aura came about. Thank you. 
It's interesting you talk about the harmonies and this kind of classical pianist coming to Irish repertoire or vice versa. Like your approach as a composer has been really to take these tunes and, and make them your own with with your whole span of influences that you have, traditional music, world music, jazz, like it's all coming together and you've taken the tunes and made them Neil Martin and Neil Martin's passions, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true, Yvonne. Um, uh, as a child, our record collection at home, my parents' record collection was extraordinary. We had Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Ray Cooder and the Beatles and Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five, Parlophone handwritten discs, film scores. You know, uh, uh, there was just such an array of music. Nicholas Tobin, the Chieftains, God, there was everything there. And I think inevitably that all comes into your own system and at different times, you know, in your and my own compositional career, certain elements have come to the fore and then they subside. But I, I, I think it's true. I, I didn't put any limitations on myself in any of these arrangements. I just says, just write, write them, you know, how you feel. Um, and also, I wanted to pay great abeyance because we talk about trad music and traditional music. The, the reality of that is that word is misleading. They were airs composed beautifully composed by terrific composers. We just don't know their names because music was not seen to the same degree of importance as it would be now. So, you know, the melody is all. Hmm. I, I'd like to pick up on what you said, Ruth, about certain tunes being brought to, to, to you know, your attention by Neil that you didn't know of. I, I felt that too, actually, when I when I looked at the, the running order. Oh, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. Yes, there's Danny Boy. There's my lag in love. But uh, yeah, it was really uh, like those tunes that I didn't know of that you had reimagined. Well, they're 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 totally new to me. Um, and it was interesting to hear you say that too. Ruth. Is, is that, was that a kind of different kind of engagement, you know, when you saw those ones? Well, yes. I mean, I was very, um, I was very excited to learn something new. You know, again, Neil and I, we we spoke a lot about these things, and he said, you know, there's these glorious airs, you know, that, and mentioned them, and I, I felt a little bit like, oh, I probably should know these, you know, but I actually don't. But it didn't take long for me to 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 engage, and I, I definitely didn't know about two thirds of the album, probably, but. Um, you know, the, the sense of life in the melody itself. I suppose my, both my grannies are from Donegal and, you know, I, I suppose I hadn't thought about these things until recently, remembering just like family evenings around the, the open fire in Malinhead and my dad sing, singing different airs and just really recognising, actually, this, this life is in me already. So it's given me a chance to, I suppose, connect with my Irishness as well. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. It's a very, very deep well from which we can draw for these. But also um, being a, an Illin Piper and a traditional musician, the oral tradition of passing tunes on is epicentral to the success of any traditional music. And likewise, you know, in this album, you know, where I first heard the opening track, Nina Whaley, for example, was from Myriad Nguyeni on a, an album called Kiala Dui that came out in the early 80s that Myriad made with Frankie. And then further research into that track also uh, let me know that Seamus Ennis travelled to Gidor in 1942 and collected that song, that very song from Annie Owen Eamon. Uh, uh, back then, uh, who would be a, a, a relative of Paddy Glacken's wife. So all of this connective tissue is very important. And once you start digging into things, 
then yes, you do like the stories, you know, or where where I heard this tune first of all, or you know why there's a track on it, Slan Lamai and Memoriam Mihal Solowine, because I, I collaborated with Mihal for thirty years, and he was a very close buddy and a great influence in the life. So it was important to do that. The Boy in the Glen that I wrote for Liam O'Flynn, uh, it was very important for me because Liam taught me pipes all those years ago in uh, Bunkrana in 1976 at the Skullegsha, a year in the Krenya, who would believe it? Um, but, you know, uh, and Liam and Michal and myself, along with Paddy Glacken, had a quartet going. And then, as Paddy Glacken said to me in uh, November uh, uh, 2018, Neil, half of our quartet died this year. So it was very important for me to remember those two uh, men, Michal and Liam, on the album as well. So yes, it's 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 life and it's one's personal history and the memories and the oral tradition. It's I suppose it's it's storytelling, isn't that what music really is to some degree? At least on this album, it is. It's telling stories through this medium called music. Music from Ruth McGinley's album Aura, featuring pieces arranged and composed by composer Neil Martin. Next, Neil O'Connor. And Yvonne, when it comes to releasing albums, Neil is very prolific and considers this a very important part of his work as a musician. Yeah, I find this so interesting, Jonathan, that for Neil, the recorded medium and the document of his work is is part of his artistic practice, central to his artistic practice. And that as an artist, he gets so much satisfaction from bringing the project quite literally from the initial artistic ideas to then disseminating his recordings to audiences. And he explains it all so well in his conversation with you. So here is Neil O'Connor in conversation with myself now. I've always been a fan. I found a kind of a, a textuality that was really similar to my own work, which is a lot of kind of uh, drone-based material. And I, I found harmonically there was some really rich and interesting parts that at the beginning of the works I was experimenting with, where I was taking frames of, of audio, extracting them from recordings and then stretching them out to really, really long durations. I, I, was, I was just experimenting with that at first and some of the tonalities that I really was interested in, especially the kind of clusters that he, he would use, brass clusters and the way that was layered. And that was the original kind of idea behind it. And then they turned into much more uh, complicated works that then evolved into more composition based. So they, the tests ended up being compositions.
tell me a little bit more about this kind of similarity between your music or your approach and Oreda's that you spotted. Obviously, our music is nothing alike, but when I started to break it down a little more, I did find similarities in, in pieces like Banks de Soulan and parts of Misha Era, where there's these kind of elongated, longer durational notes of, of drone. Now, that's obviously harping back to traditional music's use of the drone mm. historically. But they're really the sections that I found that were more interesting for me. And because I work a lot electronically, I use layering and I use maybe harmonics that aren't, you know, you, maybe you're not going to get in a, a more traditional approach in an instrument. Mm. Yes, you can through microtonal music, but when it's electronically reproduced, you have a lot more flexibility to create uh, different harmonic structures in that by changing envelopes and shapes and so on. As we are wildly different composers, the both of us, I, I did see that similarity harmonically. And that's up for the listeners to judge, I suppose, at the end of the day, whether that's been a successful translation or not. And it's a very delicate thing to have a, a more contemporary electroacoustic composer approach the music of a weirdo. very interested in the way he challenged uh, not only music making in Ireland but you know brought traditional modes into maybe more contemporary modes I do the same but very in a very novice uh, cottage industry level I'm always challenging my own tradition of electronic music the history of electronic music in Ireland and I often think about that with each new work that what am I adding each edition adds to the body of works in those areas. And I thought that all those pieces that are to made did exactly the same thing 50, 60 years ago. They added to a body of works that then allowed other contemporary composers to think about how they would approach their works. The fact that he was, he was really interested in European music and Messian and um, what was happening in Europe and was taking those ideas from Europe and bringing them to Ireland and at a place and time when Ireland was so, so wildly rural, even in in traditional uh, approaches to art and, and, and context, I think is really interesting too. Tell me a little bit more about that whole process of working on the material and how that actually works and what sort of direction the material in some sure. of the pieces took you on. Yeah. So at, at, at the very start, what I would do is I'd make a spectral analysis of a piece, which means I, could, I can visualize harmonically um, what's happening in the piece. So you see large clusters of uh, harmonics at certain tones and certain partials and let's say there's a, a brass interlude or section from a piece I would find really interesting. So I can extract very, very small frames of that sound on a computer. So it could be a microsecond or half a millisecond. Almost imperceptible to the ear. But literally that small. But they're very interestingly made up harmonically. 
what I can do then is I can bring it into um, a synthesizer that I use, a make noise shared system. And it has a module that's called a morphogene. And a morphogene is like a, a traditional tape machine that you'd have in a, an old recording studio. And what you can do is you can load that sound on a, a flashcard, like a flashcard you'd have on a camera. You put that flashcard into the machine. And on the machine, I wish I had it. Maybe you could post a picture with the, uh, <laughs> with the podcast so people can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, we will. Um, what you can do then is you can stretch out those frames. You can make them much smaller or you can make them really, really long durations. So you're playing with these small windows of, of sound. But the great thing about this uh, machine is you can pitch shift then the, all those frames of, of sound, or you can have them randomly pick out different points of the frame. So with a very, very small micro section of sound, you can stretch it into a, an evolving loop. And then you send that loop into different parts of the synthesizer to create a much bigger sound. And then that becomes the setup. When you get to that point, that's presumably the composing part of the of the of the piece. Yeah. I mean, yeah. initially it's it's the spectral analysis is that's the kind of provisional work, yeah. Mm. And then is that a kind of intuitive process that 100%, you're following? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's it's brought into computer, it's layered, and then other synthesizers come in to add additional parts to that. I had David Murphy, who's a fantastic uh, pedal steel player, come in and add some kind of more ambience. So it's, you ha it, the funny thing about it is you have uh, like, because pedal steel is a country and Western mu instrument traditionally. So I really like that idea of having a weirdos music, my electroacoustic composition, and then country and Western music all melted into one. And, and again, that maybe we'll talk about that. That is the idea of Ordnance Survey. It's taking different disparities and kind of putting them in a pot to see what the result is. mentioned Ordnance Survey and that's your kind of pseudonym for many of these recent releases yeah. in the last maybe two or three years or so. It's kind of mapping out different musical territories or musical worlds within within the kind of Irish musical landscape. Would that be fair to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely that's definitely on the on the right track. And even before Ordnance Survey I was making I was making more traditionally composition new music if you if, if that where it still exists. But I've been composing traditionally for a long time, about 25 years. I've also been making kind of more electronically pop-based music at that time as well under a different name. I was trying to figure out how could I make both of them work and how could I have a project that would maybe put the more poppy traditional music industry onto the side and maybe bring back my contemporary traditional uh, electroacoustic based music but not electroacoustic music in the in the traditional sense because you know a lot of it is academic based music it's it's more sound research if i was to use a project in a more purely electroacoustic way 
it may not work as well, I would think. It's a listenable album. Mm. It, it is very kind of like, you know, open the, the Eno-esque territory, worlds of sounds. So it, it is using different parts of the brain, I think. Another thing I wanted to ask you about um, this field of psychoacoustics, you might explain what this means and also maybe talk a little bit about how this has had a kind of an effect on your own music and on your own approach. So psychoacoustics is very much the kind of the study of how the, the brain and the ear work in conjunction with each other to interpret sound. Um, and a lot of electronic musicians will, will use the the properties of that to, you know, amplify different frequencies at certain levels and to create, it could be anything, it's a sensational um, drift in the way we work. So that approach is, is evident in nearly all the pieces that you're using a, a kind of a brain ear correlation between the sounds. Um, and that could be from using deep bass tones to create some sort of sensation in listening, or it could be using certain higher frequencies to create that. So some may use the psychoacoustic abilities of frequencies at 100 hertz to create calm or uh, disparity. And then again, it happens for upper regions, but it's more about that scientific study of sound. And it's not only about sound and it's composing entity it's also about how it moves so wh when you put your headphones on you listen to my music it's been composed also spatially which means instruments are, are put in different areas uh, where they have their own sound space so the psychoacoustic element is part of the composition but it's also part of the output in terms of how it's mixed and how it's positioned in space so you have the space element, but you also have it in the compositional world. How did you choose which pieces to reimagine? Oh, I looked at this body of work and uh, there were some I was familiar with. There was some I wasn't familiar with. There are some that are based in more their their own reinterpretation reinterpre of older traditional pieces like Ashling Gale and so on. So I was going back even further to look at a historical perspective of the piece. Uh, and I thought it was interesting to to do that and to look at the other reimaginings that had happened before um, that come from, you know, a decade ago, 20 years ago, 
40 years ago and then right back to O'Carlin's pieces and their initial responses. Um, so I did take quite popular pieces. That could be perhaps where I first started to hear them. So when I, I think I, I saw Misha Era in the cinema when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I think that the sound, the score and the sound score overwhelmed me quite a lot. So maybe there's a linking to that for it to just, to popularize the pieces that I knew mm. more than trying to delve right into very abstract pieces. And his body of work isn't, you know, substantial because he died so young. So there's really only a selection of uh, pieces that I could go for, I suppose, in many ways, because I, I didn't want to go fully traditional. I wanted to take his European art music and traditional pieces mm. that I felt would symbolize that that sense of tradition and form. You mentioned the Misha era. I mean, that's one of the pieces on the album where you really can hear it, you know, behind those those sounds. Mm. And again, you know, it's those kind of initial ideas. It's that kind of opening, yeah. you know, interval, you know. On, it's on probably the most recognizable, yeah. So that was the uh, maybe a, a little larger slice of the opening taken and put through the synthesizer, but then layered in this multi kind of cake thing where it's it's starting to evolve and then another track starts to evolve another track starts to evolve and there's probably maybe 40 tracks playing just slightly off each other so you're getting this uh, kind of combing effect um until you hear that it feels like it's the opening for six minutes but it, it's evolving in a very very slow level because the frames are kind of overlapping each other mm. And you get this layered cake effect. And then it's just layered with other electronics. The previous track, which is on on Fodger, yeah, and you can you can hear that choir, yeah. you know the the presumably that that you know the famous Coulet yeah. uh, choir again. Perhaps I'm I'm at liberty to say that I'm only taking frames again. It's not you know copyrighted to very large pieces where you know I certainly wouldn't have gone there to to take those pieces, but you're taking that little section but as you as i move them around in the system the the parts of those frames become more recognizable than me abstracting them so i i had the power to either make it fully abstract or make it more recognizable as a choir so i was the kind of person deciding that in real time whoever can hear those evolutions in the choir then that's that was my decision in real time it wasn't a premeditated 
It was a reaction to the material. I really like that idea of bringing that. You can hear the choir, then they get abstracted. You can hear the choir, then it's abstracted again. And I thought that was interesting. So the process of recording that, are you doing a number of takes of the of the piece or are you just doing one Singular. Take? Yeah, usually singular. I, I don't do multi, multi takes of, of material. First thought, best thought, I often find this works for me. Whether that's good or bad, it's really, it's dependent on how then it's going to work with the rest of the material. Uh, obviously, if there's massive errors, I may take out or extract, you know, a section that maybe doesn't work, but it's generally one take. Yeah, it's because it, for, for me, that's part of the process. It's, it's reaction to the material, whatever material that might be. Releasing albums is presumably very important to, to you as, a, as, a, as an artist. You know, it's kind of core to your practice, I'd imagine. Hey, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on releasing, bringing out music, because, you know, looking back, there's, there must be 17, 20, maybe more, you know, going back over the last number of years. How central is it to your, to your work? Yeah, really important. Probably just as important as composing for me. I've always been a documentarian. You know, I studied film actually in, in my early parts of my career before I uh, got more formally into uh, music composition and training. I'm a really keen photographer of not a digital, but analog photographies. I've been taking pictures for 25 years on, um, on film format. So for me, documentation is really important, not only personally for me, but as, as an artifact. To have a work and to have it as an artifact and whether it's a CD or a vinyl, I think is really important. I love the process. I love the the sequencing of, of tracks on an album. This takes me a long time to figure out and it's not just track one to six. This is a, an art form in its own. I enjoy working with illustrators. Gavin O'Brien uh, who's a very good friend of mine and illustrator who's done the last five album covers. I love that process of working together. Yes, he designs and, and covers it, but it's true many, many conversations and me sharing art boards with, with him, textual ideas. If you can see the, um, uh, and your listeners might see the cover online, it's a, uh, I, I wanted a certain type of font. I wanted a certain type of approach. It's kind of 1970s Irish school book. I wanted it to have a trajectory and a nostalgia that's important for me. So all that, the production of the artwork, the sequencing, and then the fact of getting that delivery of the CD or the record and then putting it on at home and having that as, or even, you know, I, I'm my own record label. So I have to go to the post office. When I leave here today and going back to the studio, I have to go to the post office, I have to send albums to Germany, Greece, France. 
And it's amazing for me to go to the post office with this thing that was that was firstly a frame of sound a year ago, and it's now getting um, shipped to Greece, uh, and it's in it's on this wax format, and that wax format will be around for a very very long time, much more than me. Um, that so this frame of sound and the microcosm of an idea is now in someone's home in Greece, not on a computer, not on Spotify not on someone's hard drive, but as a physical product of whatever this imagination made <laughs> at that time. I think that's really fascinating. Neil O'Connor. That's all for this episode. My thanks to Keith Fennell for editing both of these conversations. We'll be back again with another episode, hopefully next week. Until then, thanks for listening.